I was so lucky to get the chance to interview Robert O'Neill, who is a public defender in the state of Washington. Um, I learned so much from him and was so lucky for the experience. Um, and I hope you guys enjoy hearing our interview. We conducted our interview over the phone, and as it seems to be the trend of this year, there were obviously some tech difficulties, so there were times that we got disconnected from each other, and the recording stopped and then started up again, um, so you will hear that in the next 29, 30 minutes of the interview, so yes. This call no is problem. now being recorded. I okay. Um, so, you are a public defender, is that correct? That's correct. Public defender, Can Robert O'Neill, my name, yeah. for the record. Cool. Can you kind of describe and explain what that, what that means to you? Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, the, uh, it kind of starts with understanding that in the United States, we have a principle from the uh, United States Constitution and also in the state constitution that says that um, any time that the government accuses someone of a crime where their liberty is at stake in particular, okay, uh, where they, 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 they face the prospect of being put in jail, that they have the right, that person has the right to have an attorney represent them. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the over you know 200 years of history, what that has come to mean is that the government has to actually provide the lawyer. It's not just that they have the right to go get their own lawyer, but they have the government has to give them a lawyer if they can't afford to pay for one. And that's a, a complicated question of the relationship between you have the right to have an attorney. And you also have the right to equal protection under the law, mm -hmm. meaning that whether you're black, you're white, you're male, you're female, or importantly, you're rich or you're poor, you have the same rights to these fundamental protections. And so if we're going to say that everyone in America has the constitutional right to have an attorney, you can't make being rich or poor the barrier to that right. And so the government has to provide an attorney. And so, um, it's been an evolving thing where it, it took it took almost 150 years or more before before the Supreme Court finally acknowledged that if the right to have an attorney means anything, that the government has to actually give you that attorney. It doesn't just mean yeah. you have the right to go get one, but the government has to actually give you one if you can't get one on your own. And so there were no public defenders for the first hundred years or so of United States history. There was a there was the sixth the Sixth Amendment said that you have the right to have an attorney, but it took more than a hundred years for the for the courts to finally say, well, if that right means anything, it means we have to have to give that attorney. It doesn't just mean that you can go hire one; it means that we have to actually provide one. And so I get paid essentially by the government to defend people when the government accuses them of crimes. If that's weird enough, you know, for people to wrap their head around sometimes, but. 
and, and sometimes that causes my clients a lot of concern because I'm getting paid by the same people that are paying the, the attorney who's prosecuting them and trying to put them into jail. But, yeah. um, but the way it works in my, it, here is that, uh, I actually work for a nonprofit law firm. I don't actually work for the government, but the government is required to pay my office. So we're independently managed. We have our own okay. management and our own bosses, but they have to pay us. Oh, that's interesting. So, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Not every public defender's office works that way. There are public defender's offices where they are actual government employees. I'm not a government yeah. employee, but my office has a contract with the government to do the work for them. Huh. Okay, cool. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Um, so do you often get, like, the same cases? Are you often, like, told to kind of represent the same, like, like people for the same types of um, accusations, I guess? So, yeah, there uh, there are definite patterns to the work I do. Um, I, I ha- There are certain charges I face again and again and again. And there's certain clients I have over and over again because they get in trouble repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the, I, I personally handle any kind of felony crime that happens in, in Snohomish County under Washington state law. So it's a broad variety of stuff. I have all sorts of nonviolent offenses, like just theft, people uh, forging checks and using other people's credit cards, stealing cars, things like that. I also have very violent crimes, you know, serious assaults and sexual assaults and things like that. And I have murder cases and arson cases and, you know, uh, shootings. I have a couple of clients who are accused of mass shootings right now. And so it's kind of a broad range of cases that I do. Basically, anything under the state law. I don't do federal cases, which means people who are accused of the United States government of committing crimes, but people who are accused of crimes under the Washington State Code in Snohomish County. Yeah, and so do you have, like, an option to decline represent, like, um, helping with that? No. I I really can't say no to a case because – there are cases that no one would take if they if the attorneys had the option of saying no, right? Yeah. Um, there are cases that are clearly going to be losers. The facts are really, really ugly and and discouraging, and the clients aren't nice. And yeah. so okay. if they gave us the choice of just deciding we don't want to take the case, there are people who would go without representation, and they, they wouldn't get that constitutional guarantee of an attorney. And so my my office requires that I take any case they give me. Um, I'm not allowed to say no to a case, and I would lose my job if I did. I can I can go tell my boss if I have a personal conflict. Like, for instance, if somebody involved in the case is a family member of mine, then it would be yeah, inappropriate yeah. for me. It would be inappropriate for me to take that case. But that decision and is not made by me. I, I give the information to an administrator in my office who makes the decision whether it's a conflict of interest. But I can't say no just because I don't like the case. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, there's a little bit of violin music in the background. So that's if okay. you can hear that, that's, that's what that is. Um, I can hear it. Fine. So do you meet with the the person you're representing like multiple times before you go to court? Yeah. Uh, Multiple times before we make final decisions in their case. Yeah. A lot of times the first time I meet them is when they're in court and that's for the first time. And that's because 
somebody gets arrested, they have the right to be in front of a judge right away within 72 hours is the law. That means three business days. And so if somebody gets arrested, we got This call is now being recorded. Good. Yeah. Okay. All right. All good. Um, okay, good. So uh, you asked me if I meet them but when I, before they go to court. I was, I was telling you that people have a right to go to court right away after they've been arrested if, they, if okay. they're being held in jail. Okay. And so sometimes the, sometimes the very first time I meet my client, we are in court. They have just been arrested, and, you know, it's the morning after they've been arrested, and, uh, and I'm just introducing myself, and I do a oh, five-minute wow. interview with them, and then we go in front of the judge, and I make my first argument on their behalf, to usually to try to get them out of jail. And then, you know, if, they, if I don't get them out of jail, I meet with them shortly thereafter, and we start making a longer-term plan. I, I do a lot of emergency work. What I often say is that, you know, a lot of my work is the equivalent of being an emergency room doctor, but I'm an emergency room lawyer. You know, people okay. who are in crisis, they're in crisis, they've just been arrested and accused, and a lot of stuff's happening really fast, and it's my job to just kind of work with the chaos and try and keep them from screwing up, keep their, you know, keep their case online, do what I can to help them in the moment. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. So you, you're just like, always on call basically you know somebody from my office is always on call we have at yeah. my office in snohomish county which is the i think it's the third largest county in the state oh, um wow. we have uh almost a hundred lawyers now oh and wow that's a lot so, so yeah so we take turns being on call literally 24 mm -hmm. hours a day if you get arrested in the middle of the night and and you want to talk to a lawyer we have somebody who will wake up at two in the morning and take your phone call and talk to you. Um, wow. And and we have a system for doing that. You know, it's all kind of computerized, and we have a we have a way that the computer figures out who's on call and calls you at home. And actually, I don't do that very often anymore because I'm old enough in the office that I've opted out of it because I like yeah. my sleep. I, 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 for the first ten years of my career, I did it all the time. But it, it, it tends to be the younger lawyers who take the on-call. We get a little extra pay, but the price the price of that is that you have to wake up in the middle of the night anytime your phone rings. And I got sick of it. So I don't do the on-call very often anymore. That makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Um, so can you, can you describe, like, how most trials tend to be conducted? Um, I can tell you some of the rules. They're, they're so different. Some, sometimes yeah. I go to trial in the first – Two months that I have a case. Other times, my cases take three years to settle. It just—it's it, really yeah. varies based on the facts. But the the, the general rule is, um, you get arrested and the state makes an accusation, mm -hmm. and then then they exchange discovery, which is police reports, witness statements, videos, and pictures. Um, and most of the time, it's them giving me discovery. I generally don't give a lot of discovery to the state because I'm, de I'm the defense. I'm usually responding to the things they're doing. And yeah. so they have, a, they have a burden to share with me all of the information they have that makes them think my client's guilty. And they also have an obligation to share with me any information that might show my client is not guilty. Um, oh, they, they, okay. Interesting. They, they are required to give me things that might, make, might show that my client is not guilty. And sometimes they screw that up. Um, which is a big area that we fight about a lot is whether they have met their obligation to give me those things. But, yeah. um, and it's hard to know because it's hard for me to know what I don't know. It's hard for me to know what they haven't told me. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so sometimes I find things out 
sideways and I find, I realized that this, this, uh, this prosecutor should have given me this stuff and they've been sitting on it. Um, it doesn't happen all very, doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Um, and so we exchange discovery. And then after we've all had a chance to read police reports, look at pictures, think about what they mean, consult with experts. I, I actually have the, one of the things about your right to being defended is that I have the right to go to the judge and say, I need more money. I need to be able to pay a scientist. I need to be, pay a psychologist. I need to pay an investigator to go ask questions. And um, because that's part of your right to be defended, you know, uh, yeah. and and you can't defend yourself if if they're claiming that, that the way they know you're guilty is they found DNA. Well, you have a right to have a DNA scientist look at that and say if they're right. Right. Yeah. And so. Um, so so you do you go through that process of investigating and consulting and then you start arguing in court about what does all this evidence mean? And and that's before you do a trial, before you go in front of a jury. Um, a jury decides whether someone's guilty or innocent after they listen to the appropriate evidence. But there's usually lots and lots of argument about what evidence is appropriate to give to the jury because the prosecutors will give you all sorts of stuff that you say, this isn't right. The jury shouldn't hear about this. It, it'll make my client yeah. look bad, but it doesn't It doesn't really prove anything. And my client has the right not to be slapped with a bunch of ugly evidence that doesn't actually prove anything. And so you do a lot of pre-trial motions where you argue yeah. with the judge about this evidence shouldn't even be shown to the jury. I want this excluded. Or they they tricked my client into making a confession in an unfair way so they shouldn't hear the confession. Or you know that kind of thing or or they weren't they shouldn't have been allowed to search his car they found evidence in his car but it was they didn't go through the proper procedures to search his car so they shouldn't be able to use that search and so you do a lot of pre-trial motions to argue about what evidence will come in okay it's only after all that stuff that you actually go in front of a jury and do a trial and most cases don't go to trial i'll tell you what like i think something literally something like 2% like 2 out of 100 cases actually go to trial because most cases, wow. most cases in the course of exchanging discovery, interviewing, investigating, negotiating with the prosecutor, most cases end up being settled without a trial, either because you work out a, you work out a compromise, some kind of he'll plead guilty to something and they'll, they won't charge him with the worst they think they could do, or they dismiss the case, or the judge dismisses the case, you know, because yeah. the prosecutors did something wrong. And so it's actually really rare that cases go to trial. I still do probably between four and ten trials every year, but wow. that's out of that's out of several hundred cases that I handle in a year, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to my my next question. How often are you given somebody that you're supposed to represent in court? Um, it, it varies, but I usually have something like. 50 to 100 cases that are open at one time mm -hmm. and 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 that means that doesn't mean as uh, it, it's hard to understand what that means if you're not doing the work because some of those cases are bonehead simple they're really really simple the cops arrested yeah. a guy for a good reason and he had an uh, illegal gun in his pocket that is not a complicated case right yeah. other cases are really really complicated there's 20 witnesses and none of them really saw what happened and they're accusing my client of something really bad but you know it, it's all a, a circumstantial evidence case and it takes hundreds of hours so some cases can be settled with a few hours work some cases are going to require weeks and weeks of effort and so 
when I say I have 50 to 100, all cases are not equal. Yeah. And and they some of them close right away after a few months. Some of them take a couple of years to resolve. And in the course of a year, I'll probably get 200 or more cases assigned to me. But, you know, like I say, some of them will go away right away. Some will not. And uh, and that's just kind of – it varies. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to calculate with specificity kind of how much – how many cases I get. But – it's safe to say I have dozens of clients at any one time. That's that's a safe thing to say. Wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So you've kind of already answered this earlier. Um, so you you tend to represent people multiple times. That's is that true? Uh, that or? is often that is often true. There are certain people that get in trouble repeatedly, repeatedly because. Yeah. You know, they may be affected by mental illness, by poverty, by traumatic upbringings, things that keep bringing them into contact with the criminal justice system over and over again. And they live in this community where I work. And so, you know, I've been here for almost 20 years. I've I've done this job almost 19. uh, It'll be 19 years this summer. And so having been here this long, there are some people that I have represented many times over many years. But, you know, there are a lot of I, I think the majority of clients. They get in trouble once, I deal with them, and I never talk to them again. Yeah. This call is now being recorded. So, yeah, so you you, rep, you tend to represent certain people multiple times. That's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, have you ever encountered anything that's odd or, like, different about Washington's judicial system compared to others? Well, I've only practiced in Washington, but you you tend to learn about other systems and, Mm -hmm. you know, along the way, just kind of developing some expertise. And so there are some special things about Washington's judicial system. Uh, A lot of the West Coast states are really similar. Washington, Mm -hmm. Oregon, California, we tend to be pretty similar to one another as compared to some of the East Coast states or down south, you know. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of it has to do with when did the when did the judicial systems get started? Because, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, we were all created in the late 1800s. The United States yeah. had already been here for 100 years. But the East Coast states were established, you know, at the Revolution. And so some of it's just cultural and historical about what are the differences. But um, – you know, one of the Washington State's Constitution is a really big, involved document. It's much bigger and longer than the United States Constitution. And mm-hmm. and as a result, when they wrote the United States Constitution, um, or I'm sorry, the Washington State Constitution, they had a hundred years of experience with how constitutions worked. Um, and so the people that wrote the Washington State Constitution were much more detailed in writing yeah. it down. In the original Bill of Rights in the uh, U.S. Constitution, there were 10, 10 rights in the Bill of Rights. And I think in the Washington hmm. State Constitution, they broke it down to like 20-some. I mean, they, just, there are more rights in the Washington yeah. State Constitution because they realized we should have been more explicit. You know, to, to make Washington State work better, we're going we're gonna to be more detailed about the rights people have. And a lot of them are the same. There's a lot of rights that are just mirror images of the Washington, of the United States Constitution, but yeah. they were more specific. They broke it down into smaller pieces, and some of it's really, uh, you know, and so some of it has, you know, makes the system a little bit different. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Um, have you? How long have you been practicing law for? 
19 years. This is, I've only had, this is my first job out of law school. I've never, I've never applied for a new job after law school. Interesting. So you've, you've been a public defender the entire time. The entire time. Yep. Wow. Um, do you have any advice for anybody that's considering a career in law? My best advice is get a really diverse education before you go to law school. Learn, okay. learn some, learn history, learn science, learn, uh, literature, learn, um, about politics because the law requires some understanding of all that stuff. You know, yeah. I have to understand the history of how the legal system works. I have to understand how to write and communicate with people. I frequently need to understand science and math, you know, when they're talking about bullet trajectories or DNA or psychology. Um, yeah. you need a, you need a little bit of everything. The legal system synthesizes everything to try to solve very complicated problems. And so don't spec, if you want to go into law, don't specialize before you get there. Really, really open your mind to lots of different stuff about how our, how our culture works and how, uh, you know, just, just get a broad education before you go there. And then the other thing I would say is that if you're thinking about a career in law, really understand what, what it means to be a lawyer on a day-to-day level because mm-hmm. it's really hard work and you could potentially burn out. And one of the things that I find with young lawyers, and uh, and this applies to me personally and also to a lot of lawyers I see, is that people go to law school thinking, hey, I want a job that pays pretty well and gets some respect and I want to do this. And, you, and, and after law school, they realize I have a tremendous amount of debt because it's very expensive. Yeah. And now I'm locked into this. I have to, the only way to pay off this debt is to actually use this education and be a lawyer. And I don't like it. It's too much work. It's very stressful. It almost always is dealing with conflict because Mm -hmm. nobody needs a lawyer when things are happy and going great. You need a lawyer to solve problems, to resolve conflict. You're in a disagreement with somebody, something bad happened. And so a lot of people don't really appreciate how hard that is to do until they're doing it. And then it's too late. They already have a hundred thousand dollars in law school debt and they now have to pay that off somehow. And the only way to do it is to use that education to be a lawyer. And I see a lot of people really burning out and being disillusioned. One of the things that they say consistently is that lawyers about one in three lawyers, about 30% of lawyers are alcoholic or drug addicts. Because of the stress, because of the yeah. stress that's involved and the amount of work you have to do. And it's just really, really difficult to deal with. And that's, you know, that's a, a real wake up call. You gotta be, you gotta really take care of yourself and learn how to, learn how to, you know, live a balanced life and be healthy and be at peace when everything in your, when everything in your job is stressful. And if you're not someone who deals well with stress, maybe don't yeah. do your job. Okay. Cool. Good to know. Yeah. Um, so I'm aware that there are some pretty serious and significant differences between um, the Washington state laws and federal laws. Can you, mm-hmm. like, tell me a little bit more about some of these differences and how so do they one of, affect us? So I do criminal law. And mm-hmm. so there are lots of differences that apply to other areas of law, like environmental law, like, you know, um, what are what is the government's obligation to provide services? I don't really do those things. One of the things that I'm really interested in that affects my job on a day-to-day basis is the right to privacy. Because one of the big questions with criminal law is, 
when can the government start just interfering with your privacy? When can they just arrest you? When can they come into your house and search it? When can they stop your car and search it? When can they look in your pockets and see what you have on you? And um, one of those things in the Washington State Constitution that's not in the federal Constitution is an explicit right to privacy. Yeah. And so what the okay. Washington State, it's Article 1, Section 7, the very, the very first section of a piece of our state constitution there's a thing called article one section seven that says that we have the right to privacy and that it can't be invaded without without authority of law and that's different from the united states constitution the the subtle it's a subtle difference but it's really profound the united states constitution says that you can't be subject to unreasonable searches and seizures unreasonable is the word what's unreasonable is the word in in the United in the Washington State, they specifically say you have a right to privacy and you can't be searched without authority of law. And the difference is this: sometimes cops do things that seem reasonable, but they're actually illegal. Yeah. Like the cop, the cop means well in good faith. He thinks the law lets him do this, but it turns out he's wrong. Yeah. A lot of times under U.S. law, that's found not to be unreasonable. It's reasonable, even though the law doesn't allow it you can get away with it as a cop because it's reasonable. Not in Washington State. In Washington State, they say, I don't care how reasonable the cop thought he was being. If the law doesn't support it, it's not allowed. You have a stronger privacy right in Washington State. And so, for instance, instance, when a cop says, let's say for 30 years, the courts have said it's okay for a cop to stop somebody based on what somebody reported. I mean, just, you know, just some vague report about something. And in Washington State, they say, no, the vague report's not enough. We need more information. In, in, under the U.S. law, you might be they, – they might say that search is okay, and if they find drugs in your pocket or stolen property in your pocket or whatever, you, you can be charged with this crime. But in Washington yeah. State, they'll say, nope, there wasn't enough information there. It doesn't matter that the cop thought he was doing the right thing. What, what the cop thought doesn't matter. What matters is whether it was actually allowed by law. Therefore, the search was bad. The evidence gets thrown off or thrown mm-hmm. out, and my client is found not guilty. And so it's it's we just have special privacy protections in the in the West. And I I, I don't know exactly why that is. I wonder if it's because we were a frontier country. You know, mm-hmm. we were founded uh, we were founded by frontiersmen who came out west and and just valued their independence and privacy just a little bit more. But for whatever reason, we have a very special privacy right in Washington State that is pretty unique, pretty unique. Article huh. 1, Section 7. If you Google it, seven. yeah, just look up Google uh, Washington State Constitution, Article 1, Section 7. You'll find more information about it. Cool. Thank you so much. So that's a special example of, of, of a difference that I find really interesting. Um that, that affects my work a lot. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Um, is there anything that, um, anything else that you would like to share with me? No, I just, uh, what class are you doing this report for? Uh, this is for Washington state history. Oh, good. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know, there isn't, I don't have anything else special to say other than I, I really encourage you to go look at that, look at that, the whole first article of the Washington State Constitution, uh, not just Section 7, but Article 1 through Article 25 or whatever it is, and compare that to the United States Bill of Rights. 
um, the, the, fir the, the first 10 amendments of the U.S. Constitution. And you'll notice that there's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences. And you can kind of see how 100 years later, the people that wrote the Washington Constitution had thought about it a lot more. They had, oh, they had realized some additional problems, and they were improving on what the United States Constitution said. It's really interesting to, to think about it. You know, these people, they were all Americans. They, they believed in the U.S. Constitution, but they thought, we can make this better in our, in our state. And I think they really did. I, you'll, you'll be interested to go read that. Yeah, so I just read – them, Read them side by side. You'll be really you'll, – you'll see a lot of differences and a lot of similarities. So I just found the Washington State Constitution, and mm – -hmm. Yeah, one section seven says invasion of private affairs or home prohibited. So right. no person should without, be disturbed right. in his private affairs or his home invaded without authority of law. Right. And compare that compare that to the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, where it just talks about how you can't be subject to unreasonable searches and seizures. It's it's this is one of those things where dissecting what a word means becomes really important, and it makes a huge difference in people's lives. Um, yeah, and that's that's true for the entire the entire Constitution for every law. You know, if, if you just go go through that whole Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution, compare it to the first article of our Constitution, and you'll notice it's like it's almost like they wrote a second draft. They were like, we could yeah. do this better. We could be we could be more explicit. We could spell this out in a better way. And it's and that's what they're doing. You know. Yeah. So that's that's what I would say. You still with me? And then at this point, we ended up getting cut off, but that was basically the end of the interview anyway. We definitely had some tech difficulties and issues throughout the entire thing, but we figured it out and I think got a, a pretty successful interview out of it.